Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, the International Monetary Fund faces disruption following the arrest of its head, Dominic Strauss-Kahn. RBS boss Stephen Hester denies rumours of an early exit from his post and big banks take on capital surcharges. Joining me this week is retail banking correspondent Charlene Goff and chief regulation correspondent Brooke Masters. But let's start the show as usual with stateside. This week the US banking update comes from Justin Baer. Over to you, Justin. Thanks, Patrick. This past week we saw AIG proceed with a scaled-back stock offering and Goldman Sachs faced mounting concerns among investors that the Justice Department would pursue charges against the bank. But the big story on Wall Street this week was the historic conviction of Rajaratnam. The one-time star hedge fund manager was convicted of 14 counts of insider trading. It was the biggest insider trading case in a generation and could spawn the widespread use of wiretaps in pursuing white-collar criminals. AIG and its board decided to proceed with an offering of about 300 million shares, less than initially uh, hoped, and began its roadshow. While the offering is smaller, it will and it should start the process of reducing the U.S. government's 92% stake in AIG. The government ended up with this massive holdings through insurance companies' bailout uh, during the crisis. Uh, finally, uh, Goldman Sachs shares were under siege after several analysts cited the possibility of the Justice Department action against the bank. This stems from a U.S. Senate subcommittee report on the financial crisis that uh, debuted last month. Uh, Goldman played a starring role in that report, which was then forwarded to U.S. prosecutors, including those at the uh, Justice Department. The bank remains confident that and disagrees with many of the conclusions drawn by the report, but nevertheless, it's in the uh, Justice Department's hands now. Thanks, and back to you, Patrick. Thanks, Justin. Let's move to our first topic for today. That's Dominic Strauss-Kahn, Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, and the fact that there are looming court charges against him on the grounds of sexual assault. Joining us to discuss the topic is Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor. So, Chris, what exactly is alleged to have happened? Well, it's a very fast-moving story, but what we do know is that the charges that Dominic Strauss-Kahn is facing, he's facing three charges. One is a criminal sex act. The second is an unlawful imprisonment of the maid in his hotel room. And third is maybe the most serious of all, attempted rape. Obviously, it's very early stages, as you say, but at the very least, this disrupts the IMF's work. He was on his way or about to be on his way to Europe for a, a meeting to discuss the Greek, the latest phase of the Greek bailout. What does it do to that whole process? He was on, the, on his way to see Angela Merkel in Germany, the German chancellor, and then on his way to a Eurogroup meeting to talk about the next round of worries about Greece. And these worries are that it's pretty clear that Greece is going to need new money later in the year uh, because it was supposed to be going back to the markets later in the year, and that's simply not going to happen at current Greek bond rates. They simply can't go back to the market, so they need a, an additional money to tide them over for a longer period. So that is what the current talks are. It is not really talking about Greek restructuring yet. It's more, more sort of kicking the can 
down the road, but clearly there's going to be a hiatus before these talks uh, get underway. I don't think it means that these things will be derailed entirely, not in the short term, because the IMF says very clearly that they're open for business. John Lipsky, the Deputy Managing Director, has taken charge, just as he does normally when the Managing Director is out of town. So they, they have an institutional framework, they have the people on the ground to do this, but clearly Dominic Strauss-Kahn was very instrumental in pushing these bailouts forward. So his absence, and I, I think we should suspect he will not be present in the negotiations anytime soon, will may mean you're losing a very powerful voice and a powerful advocate for further bailouts. And what about longer term? Because I guess that's the broader concern, is that Greece certainly, Portugal certainly, and other Eurozone countries potentially will need IMF support going forward over years. As we know, even if he were cleared of these charges, Mr. Strauss-Kahn will give way as head of the IMF at some point, potentially to run for office in France, although that now seems rather in doubt. But the point, I suppose, is you know what happens with the IMF under, under a, a new leadership, depending on who that is, what happens to the, the IMF's commitment to Eurozone bailouts? Well, I think it's interesting in two respects. Well, first of all, there is already dissent within the IMF, particularly from emerging economies who say that the IMF is more lenient to its long-standing European nations and will, will lends to them on more lenient terms and even lends to them when it, they might actually be basket cases as far as the emerging world might perceive it and they're complaining that the IMF wouldn't treat them in a similar way. So there is already dissent there. If we now had a period where we have the managing director job is up for grabs, the important thing to know is that the managing director job used to be a European stitch-up. It was just accepted it would go to a European, uh, and that was essentially written down that this was the, the case. That is no longer true. It is now supposed to go to the best candidate on merit. It was clear that it was quite likely Dominic Strauss-Kahn was going to leave. Anyway, I was, I was at the IMF in April for the spring meetings and the chatter at the time was, first of all, whether Europe would still try and stitch up a, another European candidate. And the, and the thought is, yes, it will, because they might well be able to get US support. And if Europe and the US get together and say, well, this isn't the time for an emerging uh, market candidate... Europe still gets the IMF's MD job and the America gets the president of the World Bank in return for one more time, one more five-year term, and, and then we can give it to the emerging world. And if that's right, who are the names well, being... Well, the, uh... the names in Europe, the dark horse candidate is Christine Lagarde, uh, who's currently the French finance minister. People really like her. Now that Mario Draghi, who would be the other extremely qualified candidate, is almost certain to go to the European Central Bank, it would probably be Christine Lagarde. Gordon Brown, the former British Prime Minister, is, doesn't have the support of the British government and that would be make, make it very, very difficult for him to put up a bid himself to become the next MD. Some talk, wasn't there at some point, certainly of the Financial Services Authority chairman, um, Lord Turner, being a name in he the could frame? Be, he could be a name if Britain really wanted to put him up. But the thing about the IMFMD job, which is what Dominic Strauss-Kahn has done so well, is you've got to be able to hobnob with global leaders, not just global finance ministers or global heads of regulators. You've got to be on a par with Angela Merkel, President Obama, Hu Jintao in China. You've got to be able to talk to them 
on a level and that is one thing that DSK did extremely well and that's one of the reasons why the crisis ran quite smoothly because he was very good at that which former IMF MDs the, 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 the past few weren't able to do and so there is really a need for someone who's really at the very very top of um, politics especially given current situation in the markets, as we were saying around Greece and and Portugal in the immediate future. We'll be watching that story as the markets will, I'm sure, very closely. Let's move on now to RBS and the revelation that boss Stephen Hester is set to stay in the post for as long as eight more years. Charlene, this is obviously good news. Definitely for RBS and equally so for UKFI, which manages the government's uh, 83% stake in, in the bank. Now, they've obviously, it's very key for them that there's no disruption, there's no change of sort of strategy in the bank at this stage. And they brought in Stephen Hester just over two years ago. And I'm sure we'll be, you know, their whole sort of get out strategy of the bank is very crucial to um, to have him still there. Because he's got a lot of work to do. He's he's made quite a lot of progress in those two years, but he's only midway through a five-year turnaround plan. And actually, the next probably 12 to 18 months are particularly key, aren't they? What yeah. Remind us what, what exactly is coming up by the end of next year. Yeah, well, really, I think so far he's kind of got the bank back into shape. He's done the sort of using a phrase that he's used before, the sort of heavy lifting restructuring, you know, breaking the bank up into sort of core, non-core, really bringing down the non-core, shrinking that sort of uh, faster than people had expected. But now the focus very much needs to move onto the core business of RBS, what will be left with once the the cleanup has has, um, been completed. And there's some questions, I guess, over the the momentum behind that strategy. You know, analysts have been very pleased with the transformation of the bank, the way Mr. Hester has sort of come in and really made very quick work of getting rid of the sort of non-core stuff. But they're less sure about the kind of momentum that's been building in the core business. And that strategy really needs to come through now, particularly if if the bank is going to attract institutional investors, people to come in to try and buy up some of its shares. They will want to see the RBS in the future. What is that going to be? How strong is it going to be? Where it's going to be able to compete? And that's Mr. Hester's next challenge. Now, one of the other key kind of technical things is how they deal with reducing the government stake. As you say, 83% shareholding, so it's quite complicated how you get to that number. But basically, there's an equity holding that the government has of just over 70%. And then the remainder is in these so-called B shares. It seems that despite analysts, some analysts believing that the bank could buy back at least a chunk of these £25 billion of B shares, that that's pretty unlikely. I think senior management agree with that. What's likely to happen instead? Well, like you say, this is quite a complex and, and techie scenario around these B shares. And this is a, these reflect 51 billion of shares and 25.5 billion pounds of government funding. So it's a big deal for RBS. Basically, the situation is that at the moment, they're not having to pay the government any dividends on these shares that will kick in fairly soon sometime next year if the bank starts paying uh, dividends to its ordinary shareholders and these b shares have a very high price tag about seven percent so very expensive for for rbs this specific agreement isn't it called that i think it's called the dividend access share which dictates the terms of that special treatment of these shares the key thing i suppose for rbs is can they get rid of that guarantee if you like 
Yeah, exactly. Well, that falls away automatically when the share price hits 65p. But that's looking optimistic. I mean, at the moment, they're trading some way below the 50p price paid by the government. So 65p is a, is a big win. Instead, I think Mr. Hesser is going to want to try and look to renegotiate the terms. Now, exactly how he would do that is unclear, but there are options being discussed, we understand, that could see the bank come to some agreement with the government to sort of buy out that guarantee. So at at the moment, that would cost about £2.5 billion. As the share price rises, that liability would come down. So as it approaches that level, you know, it could potentially do that for cheaper. Um, but that's dependent on the share price increasing pretty steadily over the next sort of 12 to 18 months. If that's not the case, there may still be other options for the bank to get out of that clause, but that's it would have to weigh up whether the price is worth paying for that. And it's unclear at the moment exactly how that would be restructured, but one to watch. As you say, one of the uh, many topics alongside selling off their insurance business and uh, observing the work of the Vickers Commission, one of the many things that Stephen Hester is going to have to focus on now that he's hanging on, at least for the medium term. Let's move now to our final topic for today. This capital surcharges. Brooke Masters broke the story last week that there's new focus really for the global debate over surcharges for the world's biggest banks, the so-called systemically important financial institutions or SIFIs. Remind us, Brooke, of, of where we are in this whole saga. We're supposed to have a final decision on a surcharge for SIFIs, how much extra capital they have to hold against unexpected losses in time for the G20 meeting in November. That's being worked on by regulators and central bankers from around the world in a particular forum called the Financial Stability Board, but it's basically all the people who run the banks, the big central banks and the big regulatory agencies. And they're basically looking at how much extra capital beyond the 7% minimum that's been set already by the Basel III rules uh, these big SIFIs will have to hold. Correct. Um, and um, the big change that's happened over the last month or two is sort of there's starting to be a coalition of most of the big countries agreeing that there won't be one single surcharge, but rather a graduated surcharge based on a couple of factors, you know, how big you are, how complicated you are, how risky you are, and interestingly, how dominant you are in your mar whatever market you happen to be in, whether they could replace you if you fell, if you fell apart. Do we think there's going to be any distinction made between business models? Because I know this is something that some banks feel very strongly about. Santander in Spain, for example, is adamant that it should attract a lower SIFI surcharge than a riskier investment bank. I suppose the counter to that is, well, that's already in the calculations of how you get to certain capital levels. But um, I think when they talk about the, the riskiness and interconnectedness, Santander presumably, if it can prove its argument, which is that you could break it up relatively easily into bits and pieces, should benefit from that in the calculations. They have to put their money where their mouth is. I mean, if when the regulators look at it, they realize they actually can't break off Santander in the UK, then they wouldn't benefit. But assuming it stands up to scrutiny, they should get some benefit. And what's interesting about the having the graduated surcharge is it also gives a um, boost to to banks that are domestically focused. They'll have less of a surcharge. So the big, giant Chinese banks probably wouldn't have to have a surcharge. Not that it really matters anyway because the Chinese have high capital requirements. But in general, they sort of stay out of this by staying domestically focused. And when are we going to know for certain how this pans out? 
there are a series of meetings in May and June where a lot of this will get decided. It may or may not become public in July when they publish their methodology for deciding who is a SIFI. They may also at that time give us some hints about exactly where they're headed on the surcharge. They don't have to. They're not scheduled to. But it's going to leak probably. So I think by July we'll have a better feel. Well, we'll certainly try to make it public as soon as we can. That's all we have time for, sadly, for today. Um, All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene, Brooke and Chris in the studio in London and Justin in New York. And to thank you for listening. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.